millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hello folks and welcome back to the napoleonic wars pod was napoleon a narcissist it's a question that to be honest a lot of people don't find particularly controversial he was a guy who rose to the top through some frankly bloody mindedness a unwavering belief in his own ability And there's no doubt that he showed considerable arrogance on occasion over the course of his lifetime. So the idea that Napoleon might have been narcissistic shouldn't have been that surprising to people. However, when some research was done by a group of psychologists aided by a very well-respected historian a few years ago, and came out with a diagnosis that Napoleon wasn't just a narcissist, but had something called narcissistic personality disorder, it more than slightly ruffled a few feathers in the pro-Bonapartist camp. There were lots of sort of opinions thrown back and forth, lots of accusations of quack psychology and uh, hack efforts to uh, analyse somebody who quite obviously has been dead for 200 years, all of which demonstrated a catastrophic failing to actually read the research and look at the methodology before endeavouring to understand it. So I decided to give the guy who published that piece of work the right of reply. I sat down with my very good friend, Professor Ed Koss, on a recent live stream. So what you're going to hear today is the audio of that live stream. If you want to watch the whole thing, head over to the Napoleonic Wars YouTube channel, Remember to like and subscribe while you're there. Why not? Um, And then you can watch the whole thing for yourself. But what you're going to hear today is basically the the audio file from that discussion. We did have some tech issues all the way through the live stream with Ed's connection dropping in and out. So there will be gaps that clearly I can't do anything about um, in the course of the recording. Please be patient and 
work with that. Uh, but I hope you enjoy the episode. If you are interested in reading the chapter in the book that was edited by me, that then um, brought this stuff to the to the world, you can find the details uh, in the link in the description to this episode. Enjoy the show. <music> Folks, hello and welcome to another instalment of the Napoleonic Wars channel. We are live all evening tonight, getting inside the mind of Napoleon. There's a lot of hubris out there. There are a lot of opinions on what Napoleon was like, his personality, his traits. But quite often, a lot of that is mere hearsay. It's people with opinions, people who have never dug, people taking isolated quotes and making a lot of them. But what happens if you take a team of expert psychologists, pair them up with a leading historian of the period, and let the two make some sweet music? Well, that is the focus of this evening's talk. I am joined by the acclaimed historian, Professor Ed Koss, Emeritus Professor of History at the United States Command and General Staff College, and author of the very highly respected book, all for the King Shilling. Published in 2010, it looks at the British soldier under Wellington during the Peninsula War and is a book that every single time I've spoken to a veteran about, oh, we are having some minor technical issues. This is going to plague us over the course of the evening. There's not a lot we can do about it, folks. We ask your patience. Um, but as I was saying, um, every time I talk to a soldier about Ed's book, after they've read it, they always say, this guy understands what it's like to be inside the mind of a soldier. So if you haven't had a read of Ed's All for the King Shilling already, uh, I'm going to post a link to it in the chat over the course of the evening. Ed, that was a very lengthy introduction. You look good to see you, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I hope indeed we can make some sweet music this afternoon. Hey, that's, that's always the plan, right? Um, it's an interesting concept, this study that you did. Uh, it was published in a book edited by me. Full disclosure, folks, I am therefore biased because I wouldn't have published it if I thought it was absolute codswallop. So you'll, you'll, you'll get my stance on it because if Ed had handed me something and I looked at it and thought this is complete nonsense and it doesn't make any sense and there's no historical basis for this and it's, you know rubbish, then I'd have turned around and told him to go away, uh, which I clearly didn't do because it ended up being published. Um, we'll also put a link to that book in the comments so that you can buy it if you are interested. But I want to talk about, let's talk about you actually first, Ed, and your interests in this period. What is it that makes you tick when it comes to Napoleonic history? Because there is a kind of seam that runs through your work. The neurophysiology and fear of the individual on the battlefield. I think as military historians, we, we give so little credence to that. Uh, I talked to a, a lot of young budding historians and they want to talk about William H. McNeil, grandiose overview things like pursuit of power. But he wrote that at the end of his career, after, which is an overview. And I would, I'll talk to them, but isn't it the essence for you to understand your period, to understand, you know, because you're military historians, 
to understand what the the key driving forces of the soldiers are in the battlefield. And there, you can really unlock some things. And I was fortunate to teach for 15 years at the Commander General Staff College. And if I had gotten anything wrong, the Rangers or the Special Forces guys, they would have informed me without question that, well, that's that would be good, sir, if only it were true. Mm-hmm. But in I fact, imagine you might have got a slightly saltier response than, than uh, that. They were very polite. It would have been the command sergeant majors, which I ran into later, that would have used multi-syllabic words that uh, call into question my mother. You know, mm-hmm. they uh, mm-hmm. they believe wholeheartedly that when the bullets fly, and there's the underlying thing, guys and gals don't fight for God or country or an ideal. They fight for the, the person next to them. I think I had as many as 50 semesters and they told me exactly the same thing without a, without a dissenting voice. So that's why I started digging in. And then you find out things like the British method of, because it's all about survivability. That's what it's all about. And the British tactic of training these guys to hold fire, knowing that they weren't going to hit anything at 150 yards anyway with the brown bass, getting them to hold fire to 40 yards and then going to a bayonet charge. That unleashes that perspective. And it doesn't have to be a perception. It doesn't have to be reality. It just has to be perception in the mind of the soldier that his actions have efficacy. Even if they don't, but he believes they do, it releases a whole different array of hormones than if you're standing there at 175 yards, plinking away, and here come the French in the pot of charge. That's going to get a lot of reactive. It's going to get cortisol, a lot more cortisol, which is the biochemical for depression. So that's what got me into all this to discover that unintentionally the British tactic, for example, had real efficacy on the neurophysiological side. So I try to use science as much as possible. Yeah, one of the other really startling things that came out of your research that I drew upon, um, besides the the primary group concept, and we might actually do a separate live stream on that, actually. It's a fascinating topic in, in and of itself. Um, but the, the other thing that really stood out for me was when you looked at nutritional analysis. So you went and broke down what these guys were getting in terms of food day in, day out, and then compared that to the the calories that they were burning. And those results were really startling. I didn't know. And nobody had apparently ever done a micro and macro nutritional analysis of the rations. And the key thing is to remember they didn't get them every day or sometimes even every other day. And since there was such a, as you will know, and soon present in your book, uh, there was such a, disciplinary component of these guys stealing potatoes or anything, even of course they end up doing it because you'll take the risk of a punishment over survival, you know? So these guys, uh, what were they asked to do? And then what were those caloric values of the pound of meat, half a pound of bread, whatever, no, no vegetables in the original rations, none of that. And you find out that on a good day, Given, because with the, the numbers I could drew, I drew up in the uh, 
7,500 man database. Suddenly I had height and then I was able to locate the, the body mass index. So we ran tables of height and body mass index all the way from like 19 to 22. And then you found out here's calorically what you would need for an individual of this age at this time. And you find out they're, they're a third of a calorie, they're a third of a, of a ration short every given day without, ex, without exertion. And on some days they're short four or five times, which means you lose a pound for every 3,600 calories. So they're losing two pounds a day easy not including water loss, which nobody knew about hydration. So that to me told me, at least started guiding me and that these guys are stealing because they're starving. They're not doing it because they're general mass inherent criminals. They're doing it because the army can't take care of them. And that starts opening up, up windows into their, their behavior. It certainly does. Um, we will resist the temptation to turn this into a crime and punishment discussion. Right. Perhaps we'll, we'll save that for another day as well. Um, you and I talking yeah. about the implications yeah. of this. Um, certainly for my own research, looking at how actually people just seem to um, turn a, not only turn a blind eye, but then go, actually, you know what, you're, you're hungry. Go plunder. Go get some food because I need you to fight tomorrow kind of thing. But that, that's a whole other conversation. We'll save that for another time. Okay, to the, the focus of tonight's talk, then. We're going to get inside the mind of Napoleon. Um, but I, I want to be very careful about how we get into this, because there will be some dangers that we're going to talk about in just a second. Napoleon's dead. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler to anybody who's, who's tuning in tonight, but he's been dead for a heck of a long time. And that creates a problem from a diagnostics perspective. And add to that the accusation that often gets thrown at historians when um, they, they present a, a piece of research that catches people by surprise, um, that you are being biased. You know, you weren't looking for the evidence behind this. Um, uh, these are a couple of things that I've seen hurled your way, I think very unfairly, because you and I had many conversations as you were crafting this research. You were very careful about how you went about doing it. So I want to ask kind of what you went looking for in the first instance, because my sense was always that you weren't expecting the final um, analysis to actually drop out of this wider research. You had very different things in mind. Um, and the obvious thing that people are going to talk about here is, well, surely Napoleon had PTSD. When you consider what he experienced over the course of your life, it would actually be quite surprising if he didn't experience some kind of stress as a result of the trauma that he would have seen. And obviously, sure, PTSD as a concept didn't exist back then, but that doesn't mean that the symptoms that we now associate with PTSD didn't manifest themselves in a variety of ways. So in terms of what you went looking for, what were your hopes, what were your aspirations, and what did you think that you would actually find? We had nothing, and I say we because I should explain that, over the course of multiple semesters, after the, uh, the, the array of classes on Napoleon, uh, Jomini, you know, all these put together, there was always a psychologist, a student, one of my students would come up and they would just by garnering, and this is usually their first foray 
into Clausewitz or, or Napoleon. There you go. Napoleon seems like he'd be an interesting guy to have, you know, under observation because he's exhibiting some, to them, those professional, you're going to call it instinct because it's just your subconscious. But for them, their professional experience, there was some, some things that were popping up that they'd like to explore. So I stay pretty close with my students. So after I heard this like five times in a row from five different semesters, I contacted them and said, would you be interested in examining? And the, the whole study was supposed to look at Napoleon and PTSD. Oh, we have just lost the connection, folks. Apologies for this. Right, Ed will be back momentarily. So there we go. Let's just so keep rolling. Would... Yeah. They didn't miss much, okay? <laughs> but they, we decided, uh, and I, I'd rather call it PTSS because it's a syndrome. A, dis, a disorder sounds like a, a reaction that is not in line with the exigencies that caused it. It causes something egregiously different. Uh, to me, a syndrome is the opposite. It is, in fact, a behavior or a, a series of symptoms that align with the trauma that was faced. So I tend, if I slip into PTSD, I really mean PTSS. Uh, so we decided, well, 20 years of warfare, they saw a million soldier, French soldiers killed under his watch. Uh, he had a lot of reflective time on St. Helena. So let's go see if we can match up the, uh, the criteria as listed in the and I'll, I'll use this term a lot, uh, the DSM-5, and I'm talking about the Diagnostic and Statistical, Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. It's from the American Psychiatric Association. It's their, it is their tell, it's their driven book that has all the agreed upon, it's how they do diagnosis, diagnoses. So, we thought we'd line them up and we'd find something revealing and interesting. But that's not and, how it turned out at all. And, and interesting results you, you did indeed get. Um, before we get to the intricacies of this, I want to talk about the dangers. And I kind of alluded to this a couple of minutes ago, didn't I? Um, because there is always that thing of, hang on, you're trying to assess a guy who's not on the couch in front of you. And there are plenty of psychologists who will turn around and go, ah, oh, that, that's a problem right there. there are um, you, you've also got, besides the ethical considerations, and there are arguments on both sides of this, um, you know, quite obviously Napoleon can't consent to the release of this information, but is there actually a, a case to be made that you should release this information? Um, you've also got potential research biases you've got the huge dangers of what if it's done badly and there has been um some sort of pop psychology that's been done by historians who've just sort of gone i've read sort of half a manual on this and so i'm going to come to this particular opinion on a historical figure so there's a lot of danger here just talk me through how you navigated that because you were very careful and meticulous i've got to say i'm not sure we have enough time <laughs> okay there's so many 
as a historian, you find that anything novel, anything new, and you should be bringing up new stuff because otherwise you're just a chronicler telling tales. But if you do things with brand new quantitative scientific, it doesn't matter because people will hold close their own feelings and their biases. And I use that word feelings because we all gather information and create a artificial construct of what the world is like. But people, even in our profession, somehow sometimes adhere awfully emotionally close to the individuals they're studying, all right? And then they become protective. And then when the evidence, whatever, they're not open-minded anymore. Some people, they're, they're, they're biased enough, they have confirmation bias, so whatever you're coming in, they have an emotional need to slap aside with far less nuance than you're actually bringing to the table. So outside of that, which is part and parcel of our profession, that's a given. Uh, the dangers is the, to me, the, the access to Google and media and everything else where somebody can look up one fact or think they have a fact, but you don't realize that fact is actually wrong. And then they can write a comment, anything, and they don't need to be an expert. They don't even have to sign their names anymore. It's not like you used to have a discussion with somebody who held different views and you would both grow by it because that's the only reason we write. We write to engender discussion. But these are like guys who are looking for you to turn around so they can hit, hit you in the back of the head with a weight. But then when you turn around to talk to them about it, they all run away because they don't have anything. So other than that, in, and I've got to find this here, because if I look down, there's real, there's a realization that I want to get this, that there is a mental health, uh, the, the PTSD thing, for example, had 20 pages of very detailed diagnoses for it. All right, so first off, you have to have somebody, and that wasn't going to be me, be able to handle all that. But then the second part that's part of the DSM-5 is it's called the Goldwater Rule. And the Goldwater Rule is because in the 1960s, 65, 64, I forget, uh, a vast array like 1,100 psychologists found Barry Goldwater, his, his lies and a lot of things he was saying to be so potentially egregiously, stop me if any of this sounds familiar right now, egregiously bad for the nation, that they spoke out against him, all right? And they didn't have his permission. They hadn't had him in the room. And it became a, a watershed moment in the psychiatric industry so that it becomes part of the DSM-5 where it's stated, and I'm trying to find the exact words here, uh, prohibits... APA members from offering professional opinions on individuals here that were not examined. And there are professional punishments for doing so. Okay. Uh, I didn't want any of my students to get into that. But as a historian, I went and I have my own personal copy of the DSM-5. And it's a big one. And it's really amazing. It's depressing. And, you, and they're right there that said there was an exception 
The APA grants exceptions of historical figures if the psychology and the history are carefully examined. So the key word in that sentence, of course, is carefully, but we, and I'm telling you, because their professional careers as army officers are on the line if they do this in a frivolous or non-professional manner. So we sat down and set out criteria. And that criteria, I had to follow it, they had to follow it, and anything that showed up in that chapter was agreed upon by all of them after they looked through it and edited. Uh, so we were very careful to handle that ethical consideration. That was key. Uh, the plan, and we had the plan, was to use first-hand accounts of Napoleon that were either his words or his words recorded. These aren't words of secondary, tertiary people. These aren't the words of historians. We were trying to get as close as we could to having him in the chair. That was key. The bias, then maybe I have a chance of, well, one, filtering out a lot of stuff, but also finding corroborating passages that are his words, right? If I find a single instance, it means nothing. But in the end, I found, and I was looking at things that related to human interaction, emotional tells, uh, things that I thought and was, was kind of guided to, these are the things you want to look for. And I ended up finding 400 of them. Now, what they meant, I had no professional collective idea because one of the things you did as an editor was said how often is this and you really helped me how often has this been done in the past and i went i don't know and i don't care and then you said you have to care <laughs> that doesn't sound like me telling you what to do i'm <laughs> baffled by that ed uh but you must be right because i didn't hurt you so that's a good thing. <laughs> but you always have good insight so you made me go back and look it up and i was shocked to find out that every instance in the past, I think but one current one, either these kinds of analyses of historical figures, psychological analyses, were done by historians without any connection to any mental health professionals. So they just sat down, we did in our professional wisdom, and just laid it on the table as how we saw it. Well, let's that's cockamamie. Cause... I mean, let's, let's put that in a different context. Would you, for example, want me as an expert in crime and punishment in the British Army during the 1900s to either sit as a judge on a case in the Supreme Court? Um, answer, no. Or, or B, would you like me to carry out your open heart surgery today, sir? Again, I suspect not. And that's the danger here, right? So for a, a lot of the time, I as a historian find myself correcting and, and stepping in to deal with people who think that because they've read uh, an article online or because they've read a single book, they suddenly understand all about the history of the era. And so I end up having a lot of frustration trying to sort of push back against some of these um, sort of less than well-informed perceptions. And it's that same problem 
You know, we are not trained to be psychologists. And this was what I respected about your work, that you had taken the time to bring on board the team who could do the psychological stuff, provided you could do the historian's work of going digging for the authentic material. There was no other way to do it. But when you and I start looking at and find that without fail, most of them are written by historians, again, who didn't contact a military health professional, which means that book is useless. I'm sorry, it is. You can have insight, but you're not a, you're not a mental health professional. So thanks for the evaluation. But And then we found out that there were several done by psychiatrists. And you go, ooh, these are going to be great. And then you dig in, and they knew nothing about history. The most famous one, which I was told, oh, this is like the key study, the one in World War II on, the, on Hitler, right? And everybody says, it's the, it's the golden, it's, this is how it's done. And you find out that author used one Hitler biography, was dated, it was not particularly cited, and it, he ended up quoting Speer and all the people around Hitler more than Hitler, because Hitler's dead when they put the book together, right? So here's a psychologist who doesn't know anything about primary source material, and people are raving about his analysis of Hitler and his, his uh, diagnosis, but you don't have the historical information. But it's not like we're short of primary source material for Hitler, even if it's digging out Hitler's speeches, which sure, you know, they're not perfect because they're edited. Um, hello, there is Mein Kampf for a start, which you could use as a source. Sure, it's been through an editing process, but it's closer to Hitler's words than, you know, well, a, a biography. That's, that's shocking. So it was um, shocking to me too. And then I started looking at the other ones and there was a recent one that looked at like Churchill, Hitler, Napoleon. There was a whole array. Now it took us working very focused for two years to come up with this one thing on Napoleon. To do nine historical individuals would have been, you know, half of an academic lifetime. But it turns out it did. And it only took them like a year because he had no citations. There was, there was no guide to what he said. So you could go look it up, even for the psychiatric stuff. The thought of a book without footnotes does make me twitch awfully. It's a, it's a nervous tick that as a historian, I just can't get over. So I guess that the big question is the sources that you use, what did you end up leaning upon? What was it that... No. Yeah, let me, let me hit one more thing mm -hmm. because everything we do, this is the big one, the expectation of weighing historical evidence uh, then you know I, I brought it in I presented it if it had no value they threw it out if they did but what they did was corroborated I know that because I asked them here's an instance where he says makes a nasty snarky comment about one of his generals his plights okay that's that's an isolated instance here's another one Here's another one where he makes an, uh, a nasty comment. Here's one where he takes Berthier after the whole Berthier incident where he, uh, he's been longing for this woman for years and years to marry her. 
and well, and Napoleon says, well, just, you're never going to get there. Go off and marry her, this other woman. So Berthier marries the other woman within like 10 days. That woman he'd been chasing, her husband dies and she would have been free. Does Napoleon have any empathy or try to, you know, play the system and get his buddy out of that marriage? No, he brings them up in front of everybody and makes huge fun of his predicament. You come up with 50 of those, you have something. And that's has been the kind of surprise with me. Uh, the, the sheer degree of professionalism on the part of these five stands was nothing short of awesome. But you just, there's their emails to me and back and forth to each other. You go, they're being as careful as possible. That doesn't mean that modern day Napoleon admirers same they're not going to have the same care and again the problem with that is we use terms like in the end may care uh possibly he might have they're all qualifiers we're not claiming that after 200 years we know napoleon we're just claiming that here's some insight corroborated comments by napoleon assessed by mental health professionals this might give us some insight. And uh, to your question, there's, I found out that if you called Gargon, yeah, the, I'm sorry, I haven't slept much. My, my words are slipping. But if you, if you look at some of these individuals who's, I want to make sure I get all the things right here. But if you look at their, their accounts and then you, you want to describe, yeah, it's Gorgon, what, who he was. Because he, he's a general. He leaves, uh, he leaves to go with Napoleon, spend his whole time at St. Helena with him, the whole thing. If you call him a, uh, a secretary not in name, but by function. Because all that poor general does is take down the bilious stuff, the volumes of it that Napoleon spews all the time. If you call him a secretary, that causes you, because he's not an official secretary, that causes his entire account to be thrown out. What do you say to that, right? I mean... So you, there's the huge danger. One, you can't react to it is like you probably like to because you're going, these are Napoleon's words. He's recorded them because you don't like that fact that I called him a secretary. So I'm just saying any excuse, throw it out. Any excuse at all. And we know that you can look up a, a large autobiography, a, a large set of letters. And the guy gets fired later in his career. Well, he wrote a lot of this stuff way before that, all these letters from 20 years before. And he used to be a real fanboy. Okay, and, he, and then he'll throw something critical in, but he goes back to... I have to weigh that, and I should weigh that with some nuance, trying to gauge the time. Now, of course, the day after he gets fired or whatever, he's not going to be maybe as open. I got it. Any, that's just obvious. But I've been told I had to throw out all of them.
because these things that happen later in life. And then they, then the argument has been, this is Bernier, you say, well, he wrote the book in what, 1833 because he was broke and he was given X amount of money. So therefore the book has no value. We all write for money. We actually, historians don't. Well, I was going to say, well, we try and write for money, but we don't necessarily we don't. succeed. We, we People, don't if, you'd, if you'd like to change that, um, the links to both Ed's book and the, the book that forms the, the crux of this talk, or rather there's a chapter within it that forms the crux of this talk, are in the descriptor. Please scroll back through, and if you are interested, then do avail yourself of a copy. Thank you very much in advance for thanks your support. For the, thanks for pimping that. That was nice. Uh, the, uh, the idea that he wrote a book there for money, therefore negates it. And they said, well, he was doing this with a purpose. That's funny because when I dig in, the people who threw up the biggest were Bonapartists. What a shocker. Now, that is something I want the reader to know. And I, and I put a little section in, letting them know up front. We were kind of stopped by word count for me doing 2,000 word biographies of everybody I cited. But uh -huh. the, the point of the danger is you as the historian have to know all these things in the background and try to present them honestly to your reader because otherwise somebody's going to come out <clears throat> nowhere and tell you what you should and shouldn't you use. But the whole point is all that stuff's corroborated. There's nothing we use. Like some of this stuff you'll look in here go, there were 85 examples. I don't know how you could say that. Okay, if you want to throw his out, so no, there's 82. You know, I, so that was a problem. Working with these folks, once we had the ethics down, we tried to have the history down. That's all, any mistakes there are on me. Uh, is weighing them independently so we don't get groupthink. And then bringing them out and having them examine so afterwards so no this is unprofessional behavior there's a lot of things when you're you're trying to assess a historical personage that you have to really take into account uh we tried to eliminate as much bias and as much secondary this historian analysis i don't need that just let napoleon talk and boy can he talk he certainly can. Um, it comes back to the point that, sure, any historian is going to be open to critique, but at the same time, uh, as one person, uh, a rather wise individual once said to me, opinions are like backsides. Everybody has one. It's a question of how you choose to display it. <laughs> and I will fully endorse people's rights to turn around and fundamentally disagree with anything that comes out of my mouth. But if you're going to do that, please have a premise behind it. If we're going to talk about historical stuff, you know, Otherwise, you're not accusing me of being wrong. You're accusing me of incompetence, which is a very different Ooh. thing. Um, and and we we were, as you say, very meticulous in terms of, of how we went about this, to do this in an ethical way. And sure, as we're about to get to the nub of it, Napoleon does not come out of this smelling of roses. If you want to put Napoleon on a pedestal, do that. There's a case to be made for it. There's also a case to be made that you shouldn't do that. But if you're going to take issue with something purely on the basis that it's not nice about Napoleon, you do need to make sure that you're coming at this from uh, an evidence base. That's it. 
that's it. And, and that's fundamentally the problem, I suspect, in some of the reaction to this. So the, the big reveal, Napoleon wasn't just a narcissist. He wasn't like your garden variety narcissist, a bit full of himself, arrogant. Um, he, he had something called narcissistic, perhaps the, the evidence would lead us to believe that he had something called narcissistic personality disorder. What's the difference? Well, let here? me, we skip PTSS. The, the, okay, the, I was going to come back around to PTSS. Well, I think we should end, start but... with it because okay. that's what we started the research with. We were flabbergasted to find out because there's two major criteria according to the, uh, the DSM-5 directly experiencing traumatic events, witnessing in person the events as it occurred to him, and then a whole list of other criteria. Those are the only two that Napoleon qualified for. We were shocked. Uh, he seemed to exhibit only for those two standards out of 24. And that made us all stop and go, what is going on here? He's at war for two decades. He saw the deaths of millions of soldiers. Uh, for my guys, I, gals, and I have tons of respect for them, uh, I was, we were informed that about 20% of my students had PTSD. And the army across the board is about 11 to 20%. By soldiers have just seen more action, more deployments. So if in a career we saw nowhere near the combat Napoleon had, if we have numbers that look like that. How in the world does Napoleon not have PTSD? He, in his times at St. Helena, he doesn't have, and I want to make sure I get this right, he doesn't have sleep disturbances. He doesn't exhibit, uh, he does exhibit some angry outbursts, but if you walk down the list, he just doesn't have dreams, flashbacks, stimuli, which caused him to go into immediate depression or isolation. He didn't have that. And we figured out why. He doesn't have any empathy. None at all. He's None. completely I mean, incapable on, on, of it. On, well, it, let's just rarity of not showing up. Never mentions the men under his command and six years dictating to various correspondents and secretaries at St. Louis. Doesn't mention them. Uh, doesn't mention the officers except in a method to harshly critique them. He doesn't reminisce. He doesn't. I have soldiers to this day who will call me and cry when we start talking about things that they experience and they know I can be trusted. They think I get it and we have a good cathartic thing. And so how is that possible? The only person he cares for, and some uh, Charles Blanc, Jean, uh, Jean Charles, he only cared about himself. And if you only care about yourself, that frees you of all the things that would give you post-traumatic because you don't have post-traumatic. It's done. It's just, and so that shocked us. So then in that investigation, they, they came to me. Because I don't know this stuff. No, narcissistic personality disorder. 
would you like us to investigate it? Yes, please. You know, and so they did. They went through that diagnostic guide. And let me just read to you. And I think it's worth the audience knowing. Here are the criteria for this. Everybody's got some narcissism built in. Every human being. But to get the narcissistic personality disorder, you have to qualify in five of nine categories. Right. Uh, after I read these to you, you can, the audience can run themselves through and see if they qualify or their wives. A couple of times, I must yeah. say. Um, I, I don't qualify. I was mostly relieved of that. Uh, I think I probably hit three. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I went, oh, baby. <laughs> so grandiosity, fantasies of unlimited success, believes he is immeasurably special. Requires excessive admiration. That one turns out Napoleon does not. Psychologist disagrees. She said he got it in such a generous proportion. He got it all the time as a given that he doesn't mention it. But he doesn't. He doesn't mention needing excessive admiration. So it's one down for Napoleon, right? Has a sense of entitlement. He's interpersonally exploitive, lacks empathy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's envious of others. He's not because he is he's the God and he's arrogant. So people with narcissistic personality disorder have trouble handing anything they perceive as criticism. They become, ang they become angry and impatient when they don't receive the treatment they think they deserve. They have interpersonal problems, are easily slighted. They will react with rage or contempt when challenged. They have difficulty regulating emotions and behavior. Uh, they have deep of shame and security and vulnerability and often humiliation. So Napoleon qualifies on seven of the nine criteria and then he exhibits six or seven symptoms. Uh, that was that was the surprise to me. And, and we had so many examples. And narcissistic personality disorder in the hands of a commander is going to lead you to making choices like in Russia that a rational human being would never consider. Because, the, I mean, Calancourt charged just challenges Napoleon saying, we're in these towns. Napoleon said there's going to be reinforcements. There's going to be food. He said, we already came through this town on the way through Poland. They didn't want anything to do with us. There's going to be nothing there. And Napoleon's going, no, we're going to get there. We're going to be able to turn around and take on these Cossacks. And, and there's nobody there. So it causes him to channel the, the variables, the real life variables, through his filter. We all do it to a degree, but if we're all starving and you tell me there's no food, that's one thing, but if we're all starving and the boss says, there's food here, and you're going, the boss, no, there's not. Then he's making irrational choices. So that was, they were adamant. Uh, of the five psychologists, uh, four of them said he qualified under seven categories. One of them said it was eight. That's pretty definitive. That is a, an emphatic result right there. There's, there's no denying that. 
Um, and as you say, it wasn't as though, you know, you sort of found three out of your however many, what was it, three, two, three hundred? Four hundred. Um, Four hundred, apologies, um, extracts that you used. You were also very careful once you used it, once you used an extract once, you then couldn't use it in other categories. That's correct. So what this meant was that, you know, you sort of had 80 for one category and, and 70 for another. And then others where he didn't qualify, you sort of went, well, there isn't really anything that properly, fit. you know, there might be one or two, but it's not very convincing. So we therefore discard that particular category. So there was a, a lot of very careful clinical work that went into this. It was quite sort of, it was almost sort of slightly mathematical in a sense, that, that, that kind of sense of I have this body of material and if this is going to be portioned off into category one, I'm not going to reuse it. So I, I think those points perhaps get missed slightly when people sort of go, oh, I don't want to believe he had narcissistic personality disorder. Having said that, when I speak to a lot of historians of the period and say, well, Napoleon seems to have had narcissistic personality disorder, they're not particularly surprised. There seem to be quite a few examples of his behaviour over the course of um, his life that, that seem to lend themselves. Do you want to take us through a couple of well, highlights? Well, there, I'll have to bring the book out and read from that if I need to, but part of the reason I think some of them aren't surprised is they have a vague understanding of narcissism, but they don't understand the nine specific things that I read that constitute the actual disease. And the more you hone in, the more obvious it becomes, not the more vague, it becomes, yeah, uh, the, the, I have so many of these, it's going to be hard to choose. Uh, and we got to then get to depression because there's more to it. We'll get that. We'll get okay. that. Don't worry. Uh, let me see. What, what nasty... The audience is holding strong. <laughs> I'm uh, just liking the fact that you're, you're dropping these, these little teasers. I mean, folks, we're also going to talk about traumatic brain injury. So yep. buckle up, grab yourself a glass of wine. Um, Which one? And, and like to... slippers. Which one would you like to me? I'll go, I'll go to arrogant. How about that? That's, all right, then. We'll try arrogant. arrogant. Napoleon arrogant? Surely not. Well, we'll I'll skip the siege of Jaffa when he killed the 1,200 prisoners because he wanted to. I mean, so, oh, some of them were they, they'd be given their word and then they came back and fought. He just wasn't having that. That was rules of war. No, that's a, it's like the siege rules of war. You don't have to kill everybody in the fortress if you have to make a second assault. You might wreak havoc and steal and get drunk and do all that stuff and maybe even some rapes and the, and the occasional murder, but not many. But we'll just skip the fact that he thought he could just kill them all and that was all right. Oh, uh, let me see. It turns out that gallantry to women was not his strong suit. Uh, Again, you shock me. To one he said at a, a large table of societal folks, and he says, heavens, how red your elbows are. That, that doesn't sound like much, but that's meant totally to embarrass that individual. He could have said anything, and he chose those words. And then he said, my, what an ugly headdress you're wearing. Why? 
uh, your dress is not even clean. Do you ever change your gown? I have seen you too many times. That's, that's just arrogant behavior. Uh, And brings everybody together. Didn't like a intelligence report by Junot. And in front of everybody calls him an ass. He's a general. You gotta show respect. You wanna call him an ass in private? That's when you do it. But he made sure that everybody was there watching. And called him an imbecile. Do you not can you not read? There's only one reason you're doing that, is to elevate you and degrade him. You get nothing out of it. He's not a better commander for He hasn't learned how to write better intel. He's just been demeaned. Uh, Rachel Starks just popped up in the chat. Rachel, of course, what? is a regular contributor to the show oh. um, through the uh, Marshalls series, which um, is almost always... Uh, something that goes out via the um, exclusive stream of episodes. So if you want more of those, you can subscribe on Spotify to the Napoleonic Wars podcast, uh, or you can subscribe on Patreon to them. But Rachel makes the point he was always so rude to many of the women of his court. Uh, Rachel, great to see you this evening. Thanks for that. Uh, Rachel is the knowledge, as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the women of Napoleon's court. So, you know, he's consistent. I, I appreciate her insight. I Thank you, Rachel. I had 80 more examples of court nonsense to demean. I'll read you one more. Uh, he said, I have dictated 30 pages on the world's three religions, and I have read the Bible. My own opinion is made up. I do not think Jesus Christ ever existed. I believe in the Christian religion, if it dated, I would believe it if it dated from the beginning of the world. Uh, Socrates, Pluto, our, uh, Plato, and all these folks are, uh, all the English should be damned. And Jesus was put to death like many other fanatics. And then he goes on to say that, you know, he has understanding of prophets and messiahs from his vantage point there at the French throne. Somehow he in world religion. And I don't care which religion you like or don't like, but to claim that you have, you know, that he has wrestled with all these. And there's another part where I got, it's just, he says he's a, when he's in France, he's, he's like Catholic. And when he's in uh, the Middle East, he's Muslim. And he said, religions are all used uh, to compel and coerce. Well, maybe true, but that probably shouldn't be your, your mantra. So I have, you know, I don't know, you don't want to read, you don't want me reading, but uh, he is just an individual who has exhibited these egregious behaviors towards others in such a standard way that it's part and parcel of who he is. I, I do not think that I would have liked being in the room with him. Just because if he's not coming after you, he's likely coming after someone else or telling you that he can, you know, he, 
it's his ideas and he, he can conquer the world. And I should have personally exploited Let me see, sense of entitlement. Uh, I'm trying to find. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And God forbid if you ever brought something to his attention that was even a mild rebuke or called caused him to better leader, better commander, that individual is going to pay, which means he's always limited in his growth. And people, oh, no, he was, I heard the most ridiculous things. He was the most welcoming, kind individual. It's like, what, what stuff have you read? Uh, just, uh, Ah, uh, here's a good one. Uh, he said if he had stayed in Egypt, he should have become the emperor of the Orient. That's a bit grandiose. That's one of those mm -hmm. grandiose things. Uh, he says, some, some notions of predestination always affect my thought, but I never reject them. <laughs> It's the, the tag on. Um, uh, there's an interesting question that's just come in from Dave Hollins, actually. Evening, David. Uh, do these features of narcissism increase over time? He seems to be a good intel analysis when younger, but then dismisses Juno later. So he's wondering, uh, this is a point that Claire Siviter made um, during the Waterloo Live stream for the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity, that actually Napoleon seems to shift a bit in personality at different stages of his life. Did you pick up on that over the course of your research? And that's the thing that we have to remember. It's hugely important, and I really like the question, in that we as human beings, if you do something about, do a bio of me right now, that's a snapshot in time. Was I like this at age 30? Was I like, well, I be like this when I'm truly as old as dirt. Uh, you can't just sum up Napoleon writ large across his entire life with a description. What I noticed, and it's the, the narcissistic personality stuff, it grows on itself. It grows. Uh, by the end, he didn't seem to have anywhere near the same attitudes towards people that, of all people, Bernard, who was 
early on praising Napoleon for his insights and interaction. I think Napoleon always had high social intelligence, but what did he use it for? Did he use it for greater good? No, he used it for, again, more and more over time about things that benefited him or his driving idea. These got progressively worse because they're self-fueling. They're there. And now one of the criteria for this uh, narcissistic personality disorder, they have, you can't, you can't diagnose anybody under 18 with this. You're not allowed. But they have to be there from young adulthood in varying degrees. And so when you look at it, yeah, I can find them in varying degrees. He had a lot more humility, a lot more doubt early on. And then by the end, uh, I find him somewhat almost delusional in his belief. So that's a great question. Yeah, I think he changes significantly over time. Folks, keep those questions coming in. We will continue to answer them over the course of the live stream. And whilst you're reaching for the mouse and keyboard to post your comments, why not poke that like button while you're at it? It'll help the stream to grow and it will cost you nothing. It's just going to take a second out of your life. So please do whack that like button. You also might want to subscribe while you're here so that you can find your way back for future live streams. We're going to talk about treatments now, and then we're going to go on to uh, traumatic brain injury. I no, think. Don't forget depression. Oh, don't forget depression. He's not going to let me forget depression, is he? We will get to depression. Uh, okay. I promise. I promise. Um, so how do you treat Napoleon, or is it as simple as you can't? Because this is the thing with narcissism, not ex acute narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder, right? If you turn around to somebody who is narcissistic, and you offer any kind of critique, it doesn't go well. And I speak from experience of trying to sort of gently prod ideas at narcissistic individuals that, you know, maybe you need to consider a different perspective here. Maybe actually you're not quite the, 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 the God's gift to whatever area you think you're God's gift to. And the, the response is, is not good. You know, people turn around and, and go, oh, no, I'm perfect. So how do you treat Napoleon? I have a special section just for that. How do you treat That's kind of why I asked the question, if I'm being honest. I know. Narcissistic personality disorder. How did you treat it then? You don't. Okay. How do you treat what you will get to? TBI. It wasn't even recognized. You don't. How do you treat depression? They would have had various concoctions to try to get him to sleep that's it for i mean there's, there's just not much in the psychological you know recognition and treatment at the time but i was told something really interesting by them these students are just they were amazing and i learned so much and i was asking them about treatment for this because i i had an inkling trust me i had an inkling especially given our current uh I didn't even bring that up, wasn't I? No, I have to because I'm going to go back and bring it up. But the uh, the problem that was recent with the violation of the Goldwater uh, Act was because there was a book written called The Dangerous Mind of Donald Trump. And 27 psychologists felt this came out in 2017. They, they thought it was so, it didn't like before. This was so important 
that they were willing to put their careers on line. So did all individual independent assessments and okay, okay, and then you know his niece is a psychiatrist and she also diagnosed him also with antisocial personality disorder. Don't get me started on that. But I then asked the students naively, what treatment can you use? And they said, almost none. It would take intense therapy where this individual with grandiosity, feelings of being special, uh, sense of entitlement, personally exploited because he's really good of no empathy, arrogant. You got to get them into a room and get them to drop all those defensive shields to start. He's, and they said, everybody they know, they, they, they think they know because they don't get a lot of these patients. Because the patients is, as soon, if you'll listen to them, if you'll just, they'll regale you through every session endlessly. But as soon as you ask them a pointed question about, like, might you have behaved differently? He said, that'll be the last time you see him. So it makes these, makes treatment, at least they told me, really difficult. And I could see why. Because a narcissistic personality disorder is not going to seek treatment. And then he, won't, he or she won't stay. Indeed, indeed. Um, okay, so we've teased folks a lot about this. No, I'm not going to get onto depression just yet. I'm going to keep you on tenterhooks for just a tiny bit longer. You can shake your fist at me as much as you like, my friend. It's not going to make a difference. <laughs> um, traumatic brain injury. Now, this is a really interesting one because this actually has implications for Brumaire, doesn't it? I, okay, I thought we uh, you jumped there for a minute. I thought I might have lost you. No, no. Uh, so... Traumatic brain injury, this has implications for Brumaire, right? It has huge impl impl uh, implications. And the TBI being such a prevalent uh, wound with current soldiers out in their, their, their vehicles and getting blown up. And I can't tell you how many soldiers I had who tell you they were blown up. And, and then you got to wonder cognitively, emotionally. I mean, it's just... It's a mess. It is a mess. I have to also admit that uh, I was several years ago, but uh, sitting when I had gone to uh, an Air Force base and I was sitting in traffic and a guy in a van hit me about 50 miles an hour, full blast from behind. I was just sitting there. Uh, that wasn't so bad. It's when I had to stop when he drove me into the car in front of me. So I end up with TBI. Right. They tested me. I had dropped about on a scale of 130 points of cognitive function, like overnight, because I just happened to have I had to brief Petra General Petraeus on a big deal. And I thought that was kind of cool. And I didn't want to reach into a drawer, as I describe it. And that drawer is that memory drawer is empty. OK. And then the emotionality, there was, I had memory loss. I had difficulties with emotions in my kids and things. And this was just from a car accident. And getting to know this was in some ways the, the beginning of this, because I got to, because this is what I do. I went and talked to the head neuroscientist at Ohio State and asked him about this stuff. And he says, you get two years. 
your brain can heal itself in two years. But the degree with which the concussion, how off, I didn't even get knocked out. I almost got knocked out. I started to pass out and I looked at the face of one of the pedestrians who was looking at me and she was so horrified that I cycled my hockey sense. And I said, you're not hurt, you're not hurt. And so I made myself get out of the car and stumble up to check on the people in front of me. But if you get knocked out, there's varying degrees of concussion. You might never recover, right? And is is he he told me of a gal who was a Ohio State hockey player who had six concussions while she played, and the chances of you getting the next one exponentially increases every time you have one. So they made her stop playing, and he told me you you've got two years, Ed, to get your marbles back, and then if not, you'll have to come up with coping things. And he asked me some interesting questions. In my case, the memory was there. The memory retrieval part, I had to kind of come back door thinking about the battle or the individual and think about John Elting and John Elting, and then it would be there. So sometimes I would have to stall, like, like I'm doing right now. No, uh, we, we, you know, talk to the students about some interesting aspect while I'm trying to remember something. Fortunately, when I got back, I think I'd lost about 5% forever, but 5%. I know you're telling me I, I can't lose afford to lose 1%, but the, the idea that Napoleon, Napoleon, right? This is no joke stuff. You get knocked out and, he, and you get knocked out for several hours, you are going to have some degree of TBI. It's just the way it is. Uh, the, the time he was knocked out the longest, which was for several hours, because his arrogance convinced him he could drive this coach with like six never ever driven a coach like that before with six horses. And then he comes to a corner and he can't quite manage the corner with the six horses and he flips the, he flips the wagon and, and there, there he goes, boom, he bounces and he knocks himself out. He doesn't come to, and then this is the part that I'm really, I'm giving it away, but I've never seen a single discussion about, you know, Napoleon, everybody's amazed that at the coup of 18 Brumaire, he, lo he loses his ability to articulate. He like, he just walks away and lets his brother handle all the business, right? It's because it was like 13 days after him having this major concussion. He had TBI. And I think knowing this kind of stuff gives you a greater insight into the events and the limitations and the struggles of these individuals. We just think Napoleon lost his courage. Do we think he lost his cognitive capacity? Well, he did for a short time as he recovers from, from TBI. So he's, he's carrying that around. Uh, there are individuals who will get TBI and be irascible for the rest of their lives. They will change, okay? That frontal lobe stuff, they will change and they never change back. So is it not a combination of all these factors we're looking at? He's got, which we'll eventually get to, depression, <laughs> but uh, he's got- I might make you wait a little bit longer just because you raised it there. <laughs> uh, no, 
have punished me like my old teacher, but he's got apparently a an array of of psychological issues. We're going to cause them total de debilitating things, but in combination, they certainly had their their, <coughs> their effects. And then if you factor in TBI, the uh, sleep disturbances with uh, narcissistic personality disorder, you don't get sleep. That again causes cognitive and emotional, because you get in this, the TBI loop, the PTSD loop is you, you don't sleep, you fret, you think, you struggle, you don't sleep, your body releases cortisol, which again is the same hormone I mentioned before, which is the the, the hormone for depression that robs you of more sleep and pretty soon you're down. Then you're into a real depressive state. I mean, actual clinically depressed. And that's what also they brought out. They thought that he had, and I'm throwing this in just because I want to. Okay. Uh, they thought that there was a high likelihood that he had, we'll get back to, him, but he, I didn't ask him for this. This is the cool thing. This wasn't me. They said this anxiety and depression. And they had, they were coming at it from different ways, but they all identified it as a, as a, a real tell in his, his accounts. And so you put that in on top of this rest of the stuff. It's hard to function. We expect him to be this omniscient battlefield commander who never makes mistakes. And I think that's just very naive. Well, there's an interesting point here, and I will finally cave and, and allow you to talk depression. Hallelujah, <laughs> he goes. Um, but there is a point that we often praise Napoleon for his work ethic and his seeming ability to survive on what appears to be something like four hours sleep. You know, the famous thing that he sleeps from, what, 12 till 2 at night and then something like 5 till 7. Yeah, gets a And we go... We, we go, wow, this is incredible. And yet you've just made the point that actually attempting to survive on such little sleep could in itself have actually created problems for him. But I don't need to say too much about this because we're going to do a separate live stream on it. But you've got some interesting little teasers for us in relation to depression and his suicide attempts, haven't you? I do. An individual with narcissistic personality disorder who believes he cannot fail and he cannot live in a in a paradigm, a construct of which failure on his part can be constituted. And then you throw in prolonged sleep deprivation, amongst some other things which I won't review. But he he's got propensities from a young man. And I don't know if he ever gets just brought up. I don't know if he ever gets REM sleep or very little of it because it takes you, what, 90 minutes to get into REM sleep. And that's like his entire sleep. Uh, I don't think uh, had he even somehow won Waterloo, let's let's ignore the military and geopolitical aspects. He was he was an old 46. He was a his batteries were about done, I think, emotionally, cognitively. I just don't see him being the same individual. And yet we evaluate him and his decisions at Waterloo as if he was at, you know, it's 1805. And I, I think that's naive too.
Yeah, that's often been my my big sort of complaint. And and this isn't a Napoleon bashing comment, actually. Um, for the, the, the point at which I often end up raising this is when people start doing the Wellington versus Napoleon discussion. They go, well, Wellington won Waterloo, so therefore that proves that Wellington was better. No, it doesn't. It absolutely emphatically does not, because that pretends that Napoleon at Waterloo is anything like the Napoleon that wins at Austerlitz, no. which is, you, you could almost have two different people commanding. That's how utterly vast the scale of difference is. Napoleon at Austerlitz is an utterly different animal. Napoleon at Austerlitz is closer to the Napoleon that wins in the Italian campaigns in the 1790s. The Napoleon at Waterloo is a similar breed to the Napoleon of the, the 1812 campaign. And that's the problem, fundamentally, that the, the two are, are, you're comparing almost chalk and cheese, just because they're the same person doesn't mean that they are the same in terms of their ability. And I think you make a really important point here. Um, we yeah. have got a, a, a comment, um, okay. weather cool. and time beat Napoleon, not Wellington. Disagree with you there, Spartacus. Um, there's a strategy at play. Um, the weather affects everybody, so it affects the Prussians just as much as it affects Napoleon. So it means that Napoleon can't bring his troops up as quickly as he'd like, but it also means that the Prussians can't arrive as early as they would have liked. Um, it is the Allied strategy of the Waterloo campaign yeah. that beats Napoleon because the plan is to fight combined. Time is something you have to manage. That's why the, the army's always talking about you. We seize the initiative because that way your time frame is different than their time frame, your enemy's time frame, because they're busy worrying about you and the speed at which you're doing things. And they're most likely not going to notice and, and the mistakes and things you're making because for them, you seem to be doing things. And again, even with the slightly increased regimental march rate and the decentralized command in Napoleon's army, that was all about managing time. So I never liked the comparisons anyway, because they get us nowhere, as we discussed on when Marcus and I had our great debate on those two. It, I don't think anything came of it. Uh, Spartacus coming back in, but Wellington was positioned behind a hill and weather and time was his best friend. Um, I think we need to do a live stream on Waterloo at some point, Spartacus. There is uh, going to be a, an extended, very extended documentary on the Waterloo campaign as a whole, but there is a lot to unpick there. Um, being positioned behind a hill, that's just called taking up a defensive position. That's what you right. do in military history. Weather and time was his best friend. No, because it goes back to what we're saying earlier. It affects both of the Allies in the sense that, sure, Napoleon doesn't have all of his troops. But um, for Spartacus, this is the kind of thing we want to do is to have these discussions and do it in a peer-to-peer -peer way, weighing evidence, bringing things up. This is what inspires me. Uh, the looking down from a height and giving a, a, an edict even and I try not to do it either because it doesn't get you anywhere. You want to, so uh, I, I'm. I'll be on. But anyway, yeah, we will. We will come back to that, Spartacus. Uh, I'm not shutting you down because I disagree. Well, <laughs> I, I do disagree with your perspective uh, and your arguments, but that's not to say that I'm sitting here going, "You need to be quiet." You don't. It's a perspective. I disagree with it, um, and we we will do a show on that in due course. 
Um, in fact, there will be multiple because, like I say, uh, a, an extended, very extended documentary of the Waterloo campaign is coming to the channel in over the course of the autumn, fundamentally. Yay. So make sure that you are subscribed to the channel. Um, Miss it. So there you go. Um, so I think we're back to let me finally finish depression because we're talking about all these these aspects that are weighing on him. And I think in a more and more, in a heavier way, more and more impact on him. And now we're looking at him trying to manage Waterloo. He's a different cat. He'd almost have to be. But the idea that he had, that PTSD was behind it makes perfect sense. Except it doesn't work out when you dig up. It's like, how could PTSD not? But he is depressed. Long-standing sleep issues. Okay. And he describes them, the struggle of sleep. Now we can admire that with the three to four hours, maybe when you're young, but he's not voluntarily sleeping three to four hours when he's older. That's all he can get and when he can get it. Uh, I'm not revealing how many times he he tries to self-harm. Yeah, no, you're going to save that. I'm uh, saving Partly it. because you're turning, there's another edited collection coming out soon. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And, and that will form a part, well, I say soon, it will come out in time for September next year. He's it's in the, the editing stage, but I'm on it, people. Yeah, um, I've got more, you gave me 2,000 more words, so. Yeah, why was I so generous? I don't, I don't know. You did the same. That'll never catch on. You gave me like a whole bunch, like five thousand. Uh, he's got mood disturbances. He's melancholy. He is what we would call clinically depressed. Often, all right. Uh, these are not my descriptors. These are the students that I've. I hate to call them students because they're professionals, but they were my students. That's why I think of uh, poor self care. I mean, that is an indicator. You take care of yourself. Uh, chronic pain. Chronic pain often is also derived from chronic sleep deprivation. And so he's got that, and he's got instances beyond measure of volcanic explosive outbursts at people. Because he is in such, I think, physical and emotional, he's like, on edge like so badly that anything that disturbs anything he can't handle another variable now he acts like he can because he's napoleon but down deep he would just like to have some time and some generals that would sort things out for him so he could continue but you know he's not by 1812 in russia he's not, he's a shadow of who he was i don't know why Knowing this doesn't give us a hint of more insight rather than the folks who want to hear and say, no, 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 he's, he's our God throughout this war and he never, he's unchanging. You know, I, and it's, again, I put his two, it was two years of this stuff with medical health professionals and then you're fine editing and suggestions and looking, looking things up and, I like science. I don't like opinion much. Well, opinion is fine, provided it's based on fact, right? Then it's not opinion anymore. Then it's it, it's informed judgment. That's right. I guess it's it's a different entity entirely. Um, we've had a question come in from Alan. Good to see you, Alan. Thanks for joining us throughout the live stream. Can we make any judgments about his capacity for empathy 
by examining feelings for his son, Sasha's siblings. Yeah, that's a, that is insightful. You would think he would be all over losing connection to his son on St. Helena, right? He mentions it a few times. Then, he like, then it's like, it's done, it's passed. I can't do anything about it. He doesn't write about it frequently. Now, that might be an assessment on my part, but it doesn't come up. So how does it not come up every single day or every other day or, or he, it doesn't come up? Could I see Could I see that again? Yeah, of course. Um, so, oh. Alan Salazar, can we make any judgments about his capacity for empathy by examining his feelings for his son slash his siblings? Because he only brings one of the siblings up. Is it Joseph? He only likes one of his brothers and sisters. He says so. He goes, I don't like the rest. And him only out of habit. What? And they don't come up either. When you, and he's the folks that fight for you. He, he feels they've taken advantage of him. He feels that they haven't contributed. And so he, uh, he doesn't dwell on them almost at all. And I'm a firm believer that the absence of something is something. Uh-huh. If you're not, if you don't bring up your son, you don't bring up the men under your command, the, the soldiers, you don't bring them up, that's because in your day-to-day life, they're not a significant factor. But, Alan, that is an excellent question. You would think that son be all over it. Yeah, so what Ed's referring to there, for folks who aren't familiar with historian speak, because that is a phenomenon, um, it's known as reading sources against the grain. So you're not just going with the flow of the source. What does it say and what's the general mood and all the rest of it? You're actually looking at what happens when you look at things like the emissions, the the underlying sentiments. What is uh, what else is there besides the words themselves? And this is a skill that um, I think often gets missed um, when people sort of sit down and they go, oh, well, I disagree because I've got this source that says and you have to sort of do a, a whole series of detective work to try and get to that. And as we've made clear, that's been. Um, well, focus on. I was remiss. Sorry to interrupt you. You made me get, get me rolling here. Uh, I was remiss in mentioning that I searched all those primary source documents for things that ran counter to the ever accruing body of evidence. I looked for stuff that we could have, th- I would have thrown it in there. Mentions his son seven times, loves him. I would have, because that's evidence. You just can't cherry pick your evidence when you're talking about interpersonal reactions or relationships you got to put all the positive stuff and then the psychologist would have weighed it but they weren't there I don't, you put me at the end of a life my, and I know I'm never getting off St. Helena and I've got to be there spend six years there I'm going to reminisce something positive in my life I'm going to miss them I'm going to miss their laugh. I'm going to miss their proficiency. I'm going to miss their support. And it's just, he rails against everybody because you have that paradigm that he's failed within a construct that he can't fail in. And that's that's narcissism. And it's it's sad, but he went, when he passed, 
he really didn't have a whole lot of connection to, to very many people. We've we've had a few comments uh, and questions come in, which I am just going to run through quickly. Um, David Hollings, with empathy, did he not hang around after his early battle? So did he not see the mm -hmm. cash? Sorry, uh, I've misquoted David there. With empathy, he, i.e. Napoleon, did not hang around after his early battles, so he did not see the casualties. He's supposed to have slept for 48 hours after Aspen. Was he facing reality? There is a, a quote, I can't comment on whether or not it's apocryphal, but it is that very infamous one, one night in Paris will replace them all, which is consistent with the attitudes that Ed has uh, uncovered, but I can't off the top of my head recall where it comes from to be able to say whether or not it, it is... Um, accurate, but Ed, let's get your thoughts on this. You know, I wish I had David and Alan and these folks in class because I would throw the question back at them after having given them readings. I'd like to know what they think. That's how you get somewhere. I don't want to be the talking head. They've come up with, you could come up with the questions that have been posed today, then you can think, and I appreciate that. Do I th think that he he was there? Oh yeah, he was there. Do I, do, there's too many where he, he looks out over the sea of bodies and makes commentary that you went, what? That's not, because it's not what you would think would be the thing that would come out of your mouth with your own losses and the other losses. And uh, I just don't, if it didn't affect him negatively, I don't think he cared. I mean, I think he has a zero empathy quotient for whatever reason, as a human being, it's the only time I'm going to say anything for sure. It's not like I I hate Napoleon, but I want you to know I don't love him either. These things are up here, including my Napoleon behind me. They're here because it was through the examination of Napoleon and the Napoleonic Wars that I discovered so many things about history. So the, he has been my portal initially. So... My students loved it, too. They were always buying me extra stuff. And just so you know, the medals up here on Napoleon are effect authentic because you got to know, you know, they're authentic. So for those who either can't see closely enough or who are listening to this on Catch Up on the podcast, um, Ed has a Napoleon Dynamite uh, in, in the corner behind his, yeah. <laughs> uh, his desk and pinned to the chest is a Légion d'honneur, um, which is a deeply impressive thing indeed. Um, we he, have... He is, on, he is an oversized, I wish I had been this size, six foot one mannequin, because all, all male mannequins are six feet one over here. Just, you can't buy one different size. So he's large, I found a coat, I got the uniform, and he was what greeted you when you came into my office when you walked down the hallway. Why not? You know that gives you a good insight into Ed's teaching style. Um, if you walked into my classroom when I was a teacher, you'd have just found far too much minion stuff plastered <laughs> in various locations, which again gives oh, well. you far you too good, good an question. indication into my teaching style. Dillard Lester asks: Is there an argument to be made that some of these issues added to or maybe caused his success? That's a Good question. I like that because you, you can make the point that if somebody thinks they have, if they have that sense of entitlement, 
that they are destined for greatness. They I have no yeah, limits. Absolutely. There's no boundaries. I, I think absolutely, because we forget an extraordinary to, and an intellect to be able to, as I discovered with some soldiers, some people can just see maps and the ramifications just by looking at them. They don't need a full array of stuff. They'll go, the choke point is right there. You know, and he was that guy. He had so many skills. Let's not act like he couldn't win over subordinates. Now, the little ear tug and all the medals. And the, but let's think about this. You get the Legion Dynamic, you get a, uh, a full pension for life, right? He had soldier homes. He had medical care for soldiers. But he doesn't have to pay on any of that stuff if they die. So I think it's more of like a, it, it wins them, it keeps them motivated, and he's going to reward behavior of, you know, brave behavior, et cetera, et cetera. So he's got a whole array of social intelligence, his own intelligence, his ability to, to use combined arms, decentralize. He's got all that stuff. And then if you make him, if you ever stood next to somebody who's absolutely, In, in, a, in, a, in a kind of scary situation, you go with them because he's got a plan. He's damn certain of it. And you go, okay, so he's got that going for him. And then he, he wins. If he was, I think I figured out once he was 43 and seven in all his conflicts. If he had been 22 and 25, it would have been another thing entirely or whatever the numbers come out to be. Uh, so he's hugely successful. He's got all these traits, uh, believes he's special. I mean, he's got things that would drive. Did he have doubt? No, which is bad if you want a rational thought. But if you just want a driven soul, then, you know, he, he's arrogant. He believes he believes. I mean, I never did this with kids. Don't tell them we're going to go out there and kill them. You know, don't tell kids that because it may or may not be true. And they know when you're trying to yak them around. How about talk about some things that are technical that they need to do? Don't talk about winning. Talk about the details you need to win. And I think Napoleon had both. I think he gave them a sense of, because a soldier on a battlefield, if I'm French, I know I'm going to likely survive because we win. The casualties come when we lose, and I'm going to get a chance to plunder, right? I'm going to get rewards. And even you look at Michael Hughes's wonderful book, he's going to get a chance. Probably didn't know the women of Europe and, and have the uh, you know, French jurisprudence system kind of go, yeah, go ahead. Uh, things like that, all these narcissistic traits, some of them, fantasies of unlimited success but at what point do they become delusional at what point do they start becoming a detraction how about the time where he uses all such a huge proportion of the men and officers that he won with in 1805 he's used them all up through his continuous campaigns based on his ego and things now you're not going to be quite so 24 and 0-ish now your arrogance can actually fail you. Wouldn't you agree to some point, Zach? 
I sorry, you are dropping in and out in a little said, bit, Ed. Um, wouldn't you uh, agree a little bit to that? Uh, what I I think you you tap into a few really important points here. Um, one of the significant things is yes, the continuation to fight. Another is the consideration that we haven't touched on here, which is let's forget about the military angle for militant minutes and consider the diplomatic, because mm. I have always said time and again that Napoleon is a hugely successful battlefield commander. He knows how to win the war, but doesn't really know how to win the peace. My argument being there that because he is so accustomed to extracting so much, he actually insists on extracting so much. Because he's won so emphatically, he doesn't have that awareness. And perhaps this is a reflection of him as a fundamentally a battlefield commander more than anything else. He doesn't have that awareness that sometimes you don't dictate all the terms, you don't extract everything that you possibly can from your enemy. And that in turn breeds resentment. Now, in a situation where you have a guy who believes that he is predestined to greatness, who is unaccustomed to boundaries, who believes that his own will is the way that the world needs to work, that's hugely problematic in a diplomatic context, mm -hmm. right? Because he's going to insist on everything. He's going to extract everything. And that fundamentally for me is Napoleon's undoing. He asks too much too many times. So it's a, it's a, another fine question that we've had. And I usually don't praise questions as much because it's kind of, you know, rote, except these questions have all caused me to think about something I've already spent a lot of time thinking about. And I think that's a fair, fair assessment. It's going to, he's going to run out of gas emotionally, uh, logistically. I think there's a lot of things he was never going to. This he couldn't sustain this, and he wasn't even sustaining it when they were fighting at the end. Mark Trowbridge comes in with a curious thought. Perhaps the ultimate indicator of his disorder was making the decision to return in 1815. Personally, I'd agree with you there, Mark. Um, I think that's that's a powerful, um, a powerful argument to make. Um, for me, very much the, the 1815 is about Napoleon looking after Napoleon as opposed to thinking about bigger picture and the implications of his return because the man is not a fool by any stretch of the imagination. Anyone who wants to make out Napoleon is dumb has fundamentally misunderstood the guy. And I personally think he must have known that his return would lead to war. The idea that the Allies have taken the time to defeat him categorically after he's rejected those peace terms so many times and then he's just going to come back and they're going to sit there and go yeah that's fine you, you stay you stay as emperor of france um we're, we're just going to quietly ignore that, that but he wasn't naive in the he was incapable of staying on that island his ego his whole nurse absolutely incapable of because it made him now remember where does he want to go uh after Waterloo. He wants to go to America, right? He asked to go to America before Waterloo. They might have let him do it. Get him out of here. Go. But he, he can't. He cannot be secondary to anybody. He can't have terms dictated to him by anybody. He must, I think the way you said extract, he must extract <coughs> what he wants. <coughs> so did he care? that the French mothers had given 
how many sons and what call up year he was going to have to bring in. He didn't, well, if you don't have empathy, though, it sure frees you. Certainly does. We've got a last question here from Geraint, which is more a sort of call for future research, I think, than anything else. Um, how does Napoleon as a personality compare to other commanders and leaders, such as Alexander, that's our Alexander, um, Wellington, and Archduke Charles, etc.? I'm going to preempt Ed by saying that it took two years to get Napoleon sorted in Ed's research. I think we're going to need another 10 to sort out. Probably need another three just for Wellington, quite frankly, because, boy, could you make a very quick sort of back of a cigarette packet case for Wellington as a narcissist. You can find some research to support that pretty quickly. Um, but I think a lot more needs to be done um, before before you can make a definitive case on, on that one. I wish we had time. I wish I had time in my life. But there's probably not enough first-hand words of Alexander or things he dictated to compile anything. So it'd be all that kind of bad psychological analysis of history that, so you don't have enough evidence you're making guesses. I don't think that's helpful. But do I think there may be some similarities in there? Uh, the egotism, the grandiosity, and all that stuff. Yeah, I do. But that's just a guess at this point. You know how I feel about Wellington. And, uh, not a fan, apparently. <laughs> uh, they would, he would not be hard. But we would face the same kinds of pushback. Assess it because he's He's a national hero. Uh, I suppose it would be the same if we did something with George Washington over here, I assume. But George Washington is the one that turned down the kingship. Uh, uh, there's parts of Wellington that I find equally disturbing. You know, I think we praise him because in the end he won. But uh, I'm not a big... I think we could do it easily because all his volumes of correspondence and, yeah... I think without a doubt, I could, he's grandiose, bleasy special, sense of entitlement, personally exploitive, or is he, yeah, can I walk down the list, uh, lacks empathy, arrogant, yes. yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, you could easily hit four of those straight away, um, some of the others I would waver ever so slightly, but I, I think he's, he's close, if nothing else. Uh, he's certainly close. The, um, the question implies, and it's justifiably, that maybe if we did, if we had the capacity, to, then they would be done right, not shooting star stuff where somebody just makes an assessment without the evidence of the or the skill set. But it'd be it'd be interesting to know how many military commanders over time fit a great deal of these characteristics. And it is that part and parcel of what brings them in or does it in fact make them successful? Can you step on people and not worry about lack of empathy in the army? We would talk about do, which of these play into toxic leadership. That's, that's intriguing. That gets to be interesting. So the question has merit, but I sure as can do it. This has been exhausting in a good way. And it was so interesting at first. 
And then it was so interesting as we discovered things and wrote them up. But then the, uh, the care that you have to take to make so many of the people, usually I just let the evidence speak for itself. But in this case, that hasn't mattered. And it's a thing of horses and water, isn't it? Uh, and I see this a lot actually on the channel, sort of people thinking that because they've they've got a certain idea in their head, they therefore have the the only perspective that, that can and should be heard. Ed, it's been fantastic to talk to you. Folks, a reminder, if you want to buy Ed's book on the British soldier under Wellington, it's called All for the King's Shilling. That's all for the King's Shilling, the British soldier under Wellington. It was published by Oklahoma University Press in 2010. It is available to order on Amazon. Or if you're not a fan of giving Jeff Bezos your custom, you can, of course, go direct to the publisher. Check out the Oklahoma University Press website for more details. If you would like the book which contains the chapter upon which tonight's talk has been based, it is called The Sword and the Spirit. That is The Sword and the Spirit. It's the Proceedings of the First War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon Conference. It was published by Hellion. Um, and you can get that online again via Amazon, or if you feel the mood, go direct to the publisher, hellion.co.uk. Good editor. Good editor. I, I think the jury is out on the quality of the editing, um, but we'll, we'll save that discussion for another day. A massive thank you to Dr. Ed Koss, Emeritus Professor at the United States Command and General Staff College, for your time this evening. A big thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. Shout outs to my Mention in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meeking, Mark Anscombe, Bruins Girl, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Chris Pravis, Anthony Gumbau, Andrew Wright, The Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Sam German, Robin Brasher, Hospitler, James Fluick, Natasha Hobday, Roger O'Donnell, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Stephen Gillen, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Timothy Day, Sam Moore, Stephen Flanagan, Wyatt Pollock, Ulrich Decado, David Graylick, Armand Darbin, Rob Coughlin, and Noah Fink. The Marshals, Roy Muir, Ger Brown, Matt Bone, Colin Zimmerman, Ryan Diamond, Sean Sullivan, Keyes Bishop, and Charles McKay. The Emperors, Graham Swidenbank, JC Kaiser, and Bob Burnham. And last, but by no means least, the Legion de Scholars. Dan Hazelwood, David Maxwell, Liam Telfer, and Todd and Laird Campbell. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Hold up. 
the secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Malibu.com.